Polly Campbell, and this is Simply Said. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Polly, and you're listening to Polly Campbell's Simply Said, the podcast where we talk about how to live well, do good, and be happy. And boy, does that sometimes require more work than other times, right? Life is filled with challenge and stress and disappointment, and it's also filled with goodness and opportunity. But living well with all of it is often about increasing our awareness and noticing what we are doing well and what we're doing to numb ourselves against the hard times. You know, some of us overeat, some overshop. Sometimes people turn to porn or gambling or they overexercise. But often it's substance abuse, drugs and alcohol. In our culture, we almost romanticize this a little bit, it's, especially the drinking, right? But one glass of wine in the afternoon can turn into something bigger, something that can overtake your lives. And once it does, it impacts your whole family and also becomes a bigger risk for your children. That's what gets me interested in this. I have a 14-year-old and I am looking out for everything. And so today what I wanted to talk about is the practical ways we can live more meaningful lives, not always easier ones, but more resonant ones, and use learn ways to manage our health and emotions so that we don't turn to clouding our experiences and our relationship with addiction, because the addiction will win. It will take over everything. And so I have read this fantastic book. I, I got a sneak peek at it. It's coming out in April. And I invited author Jessica Leahy here. Jessica is a writer, mom, author. She's a school teacher. She's taught everything from uh, 6th to 12th grade in public and private schools. And she's perhaps best known for her podcast, hashtag M writing, and her book, The Gift of Failure, how the best parents learn to let go so children can succeed. If you haven't checked it out, that's a must read too. But what we're going to talk about today is her newest book, The Addiction Inoculation. And not only is she a wife and a parent and a teacher and an author, but Jessica is also an alcoholic. And that's how she starts her book. And that's where I want to start this podcast. Welcome, Jessica, to Simply Said. Thank you so much. I realized that just now, I just this moment realized that you are the first person who has called me an alcoholic, except for the person who intervened on me and told me that it was time to admit that's what I was. Like, I'm used to saying it myself, but I think you're the first person besides my dad to say you're an alcoholic. It was really a moment for me. I said, oh, wait a second. That's new. That's new for me. <laughs> you know what? And and I took this line out. I wrote this line. I took it out. I put it back in. I took it out. And I'm thrilled it was in there. Well, talk. I, I want to start right there because... I felt a little nervous about introducing that way. And the reason why I went back to it is because you write that in your book, you call yourself an alcoholic. And I thought there can't be shame around this anymore, right? This is a condition. So tell me how that felt and why you started, why you made this book so personal. Well, you know, the reason I think it felt weird was not just that it was that you were the first person who said it besides my dad, who's the one who first called me out. It's that um, there's a lot of discussion right now about how we should 
talk about substance use disorder or substance abuse or addiction. And it, you know, there's this shift just as there, you know, you don't say um, he's an autistic, you say he is, this is Steven, he has autism. You lead with the person first and the disorder second, because mm -hmm. you are not your disorder. And so you, you know, I do a lot of interviews, I do a lot of media stuff and I get introduced as a mother, a writer, a speaker, you know, all those things. And it's just unusual for me to get introduced as an alcoholic, mainly because then at, when you do that, it centers the, um, you know, it so centers the disorder and not the person. And so there's this wonderful shift. In fact, the um, uh, Associated Press made a shift in their style book just last year about going with, you know, a person with substance use disorder. And it's not, you know, the word addiction is in the title of my book. It's not that, you know, we've made this whole cloth shift over to, you know, talking about it, you know, differently and person oriented. It's just that it's been really nice that no longer you're saying, you know, he's an addict, she's an addict, you know, he's a junkie, that kind of stuff. You know, we're sort of more back on the person instead of the disorder, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I think that's a good thing too. And I'm glad to learn about that in a different way because as you write in your book, this is not the only thing we become, right? And and right. therefore, when we start, when we make the shift, the things that you write about, it's about recognizing the myriad things that lead us down this road that affect our kids, that affect ourselves, and, and only then can we really uh, prevent it. Yeah, I mean, there's this, the, the issue with me was, you know, I grew up not being able to say that word or not even being able to say, you know, I think my parent has um, a problem. And I was, you know, told that wasn't the fact that I was wrong. You know, we got in trouble for talking about it. So the one thing that I knew I had to do was be really, really open with my kids because my kids, you know, from the get go, have a genetic predisposition um, to substance abuse disorder. So I have to talk about it. I, I have to talk about it more than most parents would. In fact, my my uh, 17 year old came back home from school, I don't know, about a year ago. And he said, <laughs> this teacher said to the class, do your parents ever talk to you about, you know, drugs and alcohol? And <laughs> my kid was like, when does she not talk to us about drugs and alcohol? But the more you talk about it, you know, I've joked the first time I referred to myself as an alcoholic, the first time I admitted I had a problem, I threw up. It was so hard for me to deal with that statement. Uh, now we talk about it so much. It's just like talking about what we're having for dinner. So it is that easier. ever, it, it gets, I want to get into that. It does, does, is there a way of over talking this with our kids? Do we glorify it? Is, or does it just need to be part of every conversation we have at the dinner table when we're at a party, whatever? You know, it's a tough one. I actually talked to a, um, a, a scientist in the book who I didn't name because he was feeling a little weird about something he had done, which was he kind of glorified to his own kid the fact that when he was in college, he did a lot of this and a lot of that. He mm -hmm. tried just about everything. And his kid said, you know, I don't, in retrospect, I don't think that was the best approach because, you know, then it sounded like, oh, well, that sounds fun. Um, you know, for us, the other thing is my, you know, my husband does not have um, any sort of addiction disorder. He doesn't have substance use disorder. So he drinks, um, he's really careful about my needs and he only brings home like a single beer at a time or, uh, you know, a split of a bottle of wine. Or if he brings home a whole bottle of wine, we get rid of it after he's had what he's going to have. So, you know, there's, my kids have this sort of awareness all the time of the fact that 
yeah, dad did pot when he was younger and he's, you know, quipped that there are times when he feels like he lost some of his short-term memory because he did so much of it when his brain was still developing. And, you know, those sort of conversations about the realities as opposed to glorifying or as opposed to demonizing. I mean, that's the other thing we can't do. We can't say right. all drugs and alcohol are bad and that we, no one should ever touch them ever um, because I don't think that's the right way to go either. And it's really not true for everyone. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a, a nice middle ground to be struck and kids know when we're blowing smoke anyway. So the more we try to go in one extreme or the other, the less they're going to believe us when we talk. Isn't about that true? It. Boy, she's turned on to me all the time. In <laughs> fact, as I was reading your book, I would put it down and then I bring up a topic at dinner or something. We've talked <laughs> about it in my family too, but she finally, she's like, what book are you reading now? You know? <laughs> well, and the nice thing is that the book a lot of the stuff in the book is about the fact that there are these misconceptions that kids have, whether it's they overestimate, there's this thing called pluralistic ignorance, where they, we, we as humans tend to overestimate things like, you know, if you were to ask a college kid how much his roommate is drinking, your college kid will tend to overestimate um, the amount that they're roommate is drinking or will overestimate their friend's interest in having alcohol at parties. And so the more we can, um, combat that with actual real data. Like if a kid says, you know, well, everybody's doing it. Uh, well, if we know for a fact that not everyone is doing it, we have the real information in terms of the actual numbers. And by the way, new numbers get published every single year in something called Monitoring the Future, a report about kids' attitudes towards drugs and alcohol. We can know exactly what the numbers are. So if your kid comes home and says, you know, I, you know, I try this thing because man, it's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. You can say, well, you know, actually the reality is not everyone's doing it here. I have the statistics right here and I can tell you exactly how many kids are doing it. And by the way, we need to talk about your developing brain because drugs and alcohol have a different impact on a developing brain than they do on an adult brain. So some of it we can save for later and not be too worried about, you know, trying some pot once we're older than 25 for, you know, the reality is most kids' brains are not done developing until they're about 24. 25. Um, and they just do alcohol and drugs have a very different impact on a developing brain than they do on an adult brain. Let's talk about it a minute. You touch sure. on in the book how uh, kids brains are developing and they're at a different place. So alcohol has a different impact on them, right. but also the way they see their lives, like they're mm -hmm. searching for that next big exciting thing, right? The dopamine right. centers. So the, the things that the dopamine that rewards us gives that feeling of reward, right? So with our teenagers or our kids, as their brains developing, they need more and more to stimulate that to feel excited. Is that a way to say it? Well, I think it's important to remember a couple of things. Number one, dopamine is not just about rewards. It's, it's, it is motivation. It is the thing that gets us out of the bed in the morning and gets us on with our day. Without dopamine, we don't have motivation. And it's important to remember also that adolescents have lower baseline levels of dopamine than young children and, and adults. So when, you know, there's that joke, you know, kids are, adolescents seem to just always be bored. I'm just bored. I don't know what to do. And partially that has to do with lower levels of dopamine and their brains are also wired to seek novelty and to seek exciting new things. And so when you put all of that together and you put this, the fact that, you know, until their brains are fully developed, they just don't calculate risk in the same way an adult brain does, you know, you have a, a bit of a, um, a, a 
perfect storm for substance use. And it's why some people, you know, some people talk about um, substance abuse, alcoholism, drug addiction as, um, as a brain disease. And there's that school of thought. There's also the school of thought that it is a developmental disorder. I mean, you do not, people don't tend to start using and get it, um, get sort of hooked in, in their adult life. Uh, people tend to start using as adolescents and a lot of kids grow out of it. So it really seems to be a hallmark experience of the adolescent, uh, you know, as they're moving away from us and individuating and seeking out new novel experiences that help them do that. One thing you write about is the importance of helping kids manage their emotions in the, these each phase of their life, but particularly mm -hmm. in the team. So they, they don't turn to that as quickly to self-medicate and get caught up in a perfect storm where they continue using throughout their lives. So what do you mean by that? How, you know, when, when their brains are still developing and, and they're taking in a lot in the world, I mean, there's more sensory than ever before, I think. How do we help them uh, to manage those emotions rather than turning away from us or numbing in other ways? Yeah, there's, you know, especially going backing up for a second. So when I said my kids are genetically predisposed to substance abuse disorder, what I'm talking or substance use disorder, what I'm talking about is genetics seem to be there is no one gene for addiction. There's, you know, there it's a, a bunch, it's a more complex picture than that, um, that I won't go into now. But it looks like genetics and epigenetics, which is uh, how our genes are expressed based on the environment that we grow up in. Uh, it looks like that's about 50 to 60% of the picture. And then after that, we have um, various things that can trigger you know, a, an abuse situation. So for example, like uh, trauma for a lot of kids ends up being the trigger. Like they could have the genetic predisposition, but then the trauma is really the thing that, that gets them off and running. Uh, there are a lot of things like that, but trauma is a big one. So if you think about the fact that a lot of trauma you end up in a situation where either kids are not able to talk about what they're experiencing, they don't have the language to talk about what they're experiencing. So when we talk about managing your, their emotions, I'm talking about you know helping them find the words to name their emotions, giving them the opportunities to talk through what's going what's going on with them. I worked in a drug and alcohol rehab for five years as a teacher, and for a lot of those kids, it was you know as soon as the drugs are taken away from them they're suddenly feeling stuff that they have never, ever dealt with. And so helping them name what those feelings are um, is a really important part of their recovery. But getting kids, you know, to be able to do that ahead of time, naming emotions is a really big part of helping kids have good, healthy, social, emotional lives. But then on top of that, we have to also, you know, manage some of those needs to do the thrill seeking and the and the novelty seeking. Um, and we can do that by having the helping them guide them towards healthier ways to seek novelty, healthier ways to seek risk, because there are lots of ways that we do that that aren't necessarily jumping off of a cliff with a bungee cord attached to our ankles or, you know, taking some drugs. So yeah. there's a lot of suggestions in the book for how to do that. Um, but, you know, I think understanding that teens are just wired differently during that period of their lives for very specific reasons that I talk about in the book and managing that wiring so that we can make it work for them instead of against them is, is sort of the best way to get at that. Yeah, I love that approach because it's it's not going to do any good to say don't do this, right? <laughs> they're, right. they're not even right. thinking on that level. They're not able to uh, shift into that mode. When you talk about the forms of safe risk, give me a quick example. What is a safe risk where we can get our kids excited and motivated to get that 
high, for lack of a better word, from other things. Yeah, it really is just about trying new things. I mean, trying out for that sports team, that thing that scares you, trying out for a play, then that scares you, getting up on stage. Um, you know, in fact, I had been really concerned about the fact that when my son was entering, just about to enter high school, we moved. And that is a, it, that's a really terrible risk factor. It's a big risk factor for substance use because suddenly, you know, I took him away from his friends and, you know, I, I trusted those friends and I trusted trusted the families of those friends and transitions are a big risk time for kids anyway. Um, and Dr. Dan Siegel said, uh, said to me, and by the way, his books um, are Aware is a really, really good one. And Mindsight is another wonderful one. And he actually has a subject in that book, an adolescent that he helps sort of get him more tuned into his emotions and in, tuned into sort of uh, how he can manage his emotions. But he said, you know, you need to stop. This is a little bit about framing too. And you could frame that move as a big risk factor for substance use and you would be correct to do that. But why don't you frame it as a great opportunity for novelty? So, you know, go exploring in your new home, find places that are new to him, um, help him, you know, get him out there meeting new people. And so you can help familiarize him with his new home by sort of pushing him outside of his comfort zone. And that will fulfill some of those dopamine hits of novelty and novelty and novelty novelty, which he had plenty to choose from moving to a new place. Yeah, I, I love that. I talk a lot about framing and reframing. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what is so important to remember about this issue and everything is that there are always multiple sides, right? There's never one right thing, uh, unless you're in algebra, which I never got the right thing anyhow. So <laughs> I don't go into that, but, but it, yeah, there are many ways to look at the situation and it doesn't mean to disregard the other side, right. it means challenge yourself to find some other options as well. I love that. Um, and I, I, think I actually just wrote a feature piece that will be out by the time this comes out about that very thing. You know, we can wallow in the things that are horrible and terrible, and we can acknowledge the, the hardship that people are going through with this pandemic. Um, and at the same time, we can also do what's really important for our kids, which is helping them to reframe some of this stress that they're feeling and some of the anxiety they're feeling about being so out of control. We can help them reframe that and help preserve some of their mental health Absolutely. and their spirit and their hope during this situation. Well, we talk about that a lot on the show too, and a lot in my own household, that this is a chance for my daughter to practice her resilience and look at how yeah. well she's doing. You know, she's right. so, she's so strong and, you know, all those things. But I want to get into another tool that I talk about a lot because uh, I think it's essential for our kids and I want to get your take on it. And in one of your chapters, it's called Tipping the Scales of Addiction. Mm -hmm. And and you really offer some perspectives about helping kids lean away from it as a mm -hmm. form of prevention. And one of the things you talk about is optimism and other great things that I really believe in, but you talk about self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. um, I also felt like Gift of Failure touched on this. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we are showing our kids how not to be capable by not believing in them or by not letting them sort through their own difficulties to some degree. So when we can teach them their own mastery or capability, I think they're empowered in every way. I'd, I'd be interested in your take on that. How does self-efficacy play into addiction prevention? 
Well, self-efficacy plays into everything, mental health and learned helplessness and all these other things, because self-efficacy is the sense that if you do something, if you make a decision and you take an action, that it that something will change. So for example, I had kids in my rehab classroom who had very low sense of self-efficacy. They didn't, because for example, they were in an abusive situation where they were being hit at home and no matter what they did, um, they couldn't change that. And so control is just taken away from them. They had no sense of autonomy over their sort of their environment. They have no feelings of self-efficacy in the terms of, you know, I, I, I want to be out of the situation. I want to change the situation. I can do something to prevent it. And they couldn't. So that feeling of lack of self-efficacy feeds into this thing called learned helplessness. And learned helplessness um, is really fascinating in the sense that the more we take control away from kids, the more helpless they become. And as humans, there's some wonderful metadata on um, learned helplessness from Martin Seligman at University of Pennsylvania that, you know, learned helplessness is sort of our default circuitry in our brains when we're faced with long-term hardship and sadness and pain that we just want to curl up in a ball and give up and, and hand the reins over. But the way we interrupt that circuitry is by giving more control and autonomy back. So the more we can help kids feel empowered, the more we can help them see that their actions can have an impact. And that's going to be really hard for some kids because they're in situations where there's very little they can do. But even if it's small things, every time I could show a kid that, look, you just decided to set some goals for yourself and you achieve this short-term goal, you can actually change your, your immediate environment and the world if you just keep doing that, setting these small goals and achieving them. And that's like the key to everything. Self-efficacy is the key to feeling like you have um, the ability to shape your life and, and the world around you. And there is no more important sense, I think, um, as kids get older, as they're at, you know, during adolescence, they're growing away from us, is to give them a sense of the ability to self-advocate of self-efficacy and take any sort of sense of learned helplessness, get rid of that so that they can feel like they really do have power in this world. So let's make that the simply start today. Find a way to uh, help the kids in your life see their own power and their own capability and their own ability to shape their experience with their decisions and with their choices. I think that's a way to start talking to our kids and empowering our kids to make healthier decisions for their lives and create the lives they want all along the way. And it's good for us too. So well, and it's, it's also really easy to start because, you know, when we take over and do something for our kids, when they're trying to do it, or they start doing it themselves and we take over what they hear us say is, you know, I just don't think you're competent enough to do that yourself. Even if what you're saying is, you know, it's faster if I do it, or we're in a rush and we have to get out the door, or I don't want you to feel frustrated or bad about yourself. But little things like, you know, when they're trying to tie their shoes rather than taking over and doing it for them, you know, find a time when you can have the patience to sit there and work through it. Because once they've been able to do it once themselves, they've banished that sort of sense of learned helplessness over shoe tying. And it's really important to start young with kids. And, and give them totally. some credit for being able to figure out things for themselves. Give them credit for working through the problem. It's not the outcome, right? It's the fact that they sat in there and right. went through the process and right. they got some outcome. It might not be that they got the shoe tied. Right. Well, if that happens, then our job is to model for them a positive adaptive response to failure. Like, okay, well, what didn't work? What are you going to leave behind? And what are you going to do differently next time so that it does work? Or are okay. you going to practice or, you know, use words like yet? Of course you can't do it yet. You just learned how to 
day, but with some practice, you'll be able to do it. And also focusing more on the process and less on the product can really yeah. diffuse a lot of anxiety and sort of those obsessive feelings of perfectionism. The more we say, you know, well, you know, how do we do things differently next time? What did you do to get to where you are? What do we not do next time? All that sort of stuff, that emphasis on process really does diffuse anxiety in kids. And that prevents other substance use and other things, I imagine, that we don't want to get into. Right. Exactly. That brings us to the Simply Nifty segment where I talk about my favorite things. And this book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence by Jessica Leahy is one of my favorite things. I was telling Jessica before the show that, you know, I read a lot of books and I'm a writer as well. So I'm writing books and I figured I'd just skim this and get ready for the podcast. And I read the first page, ended up reading the whole book. This is not a little book, Jessica, (laughs) but I ended up reading the whole book. It is so compelling. Not only is there great research and, and really verifiable, a lot of facts, a lot of things you can hang your hat on, but it's really an interesting read. She gets personal here and explains how these things work in her family and how they can work for ours. Pick it up. This is Simply Nifty, The Addiction Inoculation. Now, it's pre-orders right now. Is that right? Yep. It comes out on April 6th. And uh, you mentioned that there's a lot of me in there. I also want to make sure to thank, you know, there were students uh, of mine and people who are now young adults who were really, really brave and went go deep. Georgia and Brian, I'm thinking about specifically, go really deep into their own stories. Those are their real names. They really wanted to share their experiences of substance abuse so that they could help other people. And I'm so grateful to them for that. I think that's an important comment because one of the things that made the book so compelling is is all these different stories and perspectives and taking the shame kind of out of this illness and, yeah. and the struggle that many families are having and, and we don't have to be alone in it, right? Right. There's help and there's prevention techniques we can use so we don't create the same patterns for our kids and yeah. uh, we can get well. Yeah, over and over again, I kept saying, are you sure you want my, me to put your real names in there? I don't have to. And they kept saying over and over again, nope, this is too important that we have, you know, I was made to feel shamed about it. And I'm not going to do that to someone else. Great. Well, it made a difference to the book. So if you want to find more of Jessica's books and writing, um, you can get her books wherever books are sold and check out her podcast, hashtag mwriting, and go to her website, jessicalahey.com. That's Jessica, L-A-H-E-Y.com. Check out her other work. She Her work appears everywhere and it's fantastic stuff. Pick up this book, The Addiction Inoculation. And you can find me at polycampbell.com. Join me on Facebook at Polly Campbell Author. Sign up for the newsletter. And I've got my newest book coming out in just a couple of weeks. You recharged. You can get that wherever books are sold. And we go into some of these things that Jessica touched in today as well. We, we talk about reframing. We talk about uh, tweaking our mindset to use words like yet to empower our lives to become uh capable and energized about how we're relating in the world. I think it all makes a difference. So check that out. You recharge, you can get that on my website or wherever books are sold. So Jessica, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. I learned a lot. Great book. Thanks for the work you're doing. It's making a difference. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Today, listeners, everybody, let's all just take a deep breath. Look back in your family history, some of the things that maybe you weren't allowed to talk about when you were a kid, some of the ways you learned to manage your emotions and your beliefs and your habits around alcohol and drinking or drug use or anything else that takes your energy without giving anything back. And then start the discussion with your family. 
we can learn to stop numbing ourselves by managing our emotions, by supporting each other and learning the facts behind alcoholism and drug addiction. So let's start working to prevent this disease instead of keeping it quiet and feeling ashamed for it because it takes so many people out of their lives and out of their families and we can go ahead and do it differently going forward. I think when we start talking about these things and learning how we can help each other prevent it, we can all live well, do good and be happy. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here and I wanna share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on ElectroCast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. ElectroCast. Acid.